0: The use of artificial intelligence systems has become ubiquitous, with wide-ranging applications ranging from helping you shop online, to sorting the photos on your iPhone, to steering autonomous vehicles, managing stock investment, and monitoring fields and pastures to determine the right amount of pesticides, um, or to monitor the human body to detect health problems. Um, Artificial intelligence also makes us uneasy. It uh, conjures images of smart machines, like the Terminator, that rather harm than help us. This concern, I think, is tied to the fact that few of us actually understand how artificial intelligence operates. Does it work the same way as human intelligence? Where is it superior and where are its limits? And really, what is intelligence in the first place? Are Alexa, Siri, and the Google Assistant more intelligent than I? Because they know the quickest um, route to work, while I get stuck in traffic when I try to decide myself. At the same time, we neglect the fact that much about the human brain and human intelligence too remains to be understood. Today in our DWIH coffee talk, we will take a closer look at both artificial and human intelligence and also how they benefit each other and how they might tie into each other. Over the next uh, 60 minutes, we will examine, first of all, how artificial intelligence has helped with recent research in neuroscience. We will take a look at the basic processes of human learning and decision making to help us both understand human and artificial intelligence. We will examine how findings from recent research in neuroscience contributes to developing artificial intelligence systems further. And we will look at f- where artificial intelligence and human intelligence are similar, where they are different, and whether artificial intelligence will be smarter than human intelligence at some point in the future. To help us with these questions, I'm very fortunate to welcome today um, two experts in neuroscience and artificial intelligence, Dr. Niklas Schuck. Niklas Schuck is leader of the Max Planck Research Group NeuroCode uh, uh, for Neural and Computational Basis of Learning, Memory, and Decision-Making at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin. And Dr. Ming-Bo Tsai, Principal investigator and assistant professor at the International Research Center for Neurointelligence, IRCN, at the University of Tokyo. Welcome to you both and thanks for making time today.
1: Thank you very much for the introduction. It's our pleasure to join today.
0: It's a pleasure. It's truly international again. Um, Niklas is with us from Germany, Ming was here in Tokyo with us. Um, Let me also um, give a big thanks to our colleagues from the German Research Foundation, the DFG, who introduced us to you, Niklas. And Niklas introduced us to Mingbo, and Mingbo introduced us to a great many colleagues whom we wanted to invite today, but who unfortunately all were were busy with other projects. Thank you for having me, Axel. Thanks so much. To our viewers, um, you are probably familiar already with the DWH Coffee Talk. If you want to get in touch with us, During our talk, um, you can check our website, there's a link um, to Slido, to the website Slido, and you can post your your questions there, and some of you already made use of that and sent us questions in advance, we try to incorporate them today as much as possible, um, unless they vastly exceed um, the topic of our talk today. we talk about the human brain today we talk about artificial intelligence um uh, niklas i remember reading that um the art the the human brain supposedly is the the human organ that we know the least about so i uh, wanted to start today by asking you um how much or how little do we actually understand about the human brain or human neurological processes
2: um yeah, I think that's a that's a great question, and there's probably not a single answer to it. Um, but I would I would say at the one. On the one hand, um, we have understood quite well um, some of the fundamental bases of the brain over the last 100 years or so. Um, We know that synaptic plasticity is one very fundamental mechanism uh, for the brain. We know that there are certain cell types which are very crucial and other cell types which probably serve more metabolic functions and some are crucial for cognitive functions and so forth. Um, And today, the the rate of progress is particularly notable I think in neuroscience uh, these days as basically no day passes without us making very fundamental um, discoveries and one one recent um, example that I find uh, quite striking is that in 2014. Neuroscientists were um, awarded for the discovery of a special cell type call, called the place cells. They were first reported in the 80s, and as things go in science, it takes a little while uh, before the Nobel Prize comes around.
0: I, I'm sorry, but what, what kind of
2: cells did
0: you say? Sorry to interrupt place, you there.
2: Place cells. Of oh, place cells, okay, yes. So these are spatially tuned cells, and it, maybe it doesn't matter as much what exactly they do, but it was a fundamental discovery for the field of neuroscience. But even today, only uh, five, 10, 15 years later, we are already um, discussing um, very heatedly in neuroscience whether these findings need to be reinterpreted, And that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that the original findings were wrong. It just means that we're making progress at such a fast pace that we are basically overhauling our sort of revolutions in a relatively fast timescale. And I think that's fascinating. On the other hand, I think I should also say that um, we do know very little about the brain cell. And part of the reason is that compared to other organs in particular, it's just so complex. Um, The brain has um, about 80 billion nerve cells in it. uh, And these nerve cells form a very intricate net of interconnections, uh, such that we end up with something like 10 to the power of 14 connections between these brain cells. And And the problem, so to speak, is that it doesn't not only have all this complexity and all these details, but the complexity and the details really matter for the kinds of questions that we do have about the brain. So if you want to ask questions about cognition, we cannot easily make statements just based on the very fundamental facts about the brain that we already know, such that there are some areas of the brain that tend to process language and others Mm -hmm. tend to process other things but many of the things that we are interested in now are somewhere in these details and we haven't really understood all of these details yet.
0: Yeah. You both deal with artificial intelligence um, and and the first thing I was wondering about when we discussed the outline for our talk was um, what what role does artificial intelligence play in your research. Um, Now, Niklas, you you said um, The fact that um, it has taken quite a while to to fathom the brain and its functions uh, relates to its complexity. Uh, uh, Mingma, what would you say has, uh, Niklas just mentioned actually, how how the speed of discovery has increased over the past couple of years. Um, Is is that related to the uh, the technical advances that we've seen?
1: Yes, indeed. I think uh, one important aspect is the technical advancement. Right, so uh, in the past, uh, people have, when, we, when people try to record neurons, they have to poke electrodes uh, individually on the neurons. That's very labor intensive and the, the size of electrodes basically also limit how many neurons you can record. But nowadays people use uh, optical imaging that can simultaneously uh, record the activity of thousands or even millions of neurons simultaneously at the same time. So that's a very big advantage in terms of the, the technique to measure neural activity. And uh, of course, when measuring neuro, uh, human brain activity, we are also making different uh, progresses, both in terms of the hardware and also in terms of the algorithm to analyze. Uh, yeah.
0: Software. And, and this, this that, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. And, and this technology, optical imaging, has been around for, for how long? Since since when has it been an integral part of research?
1: And that's a good question. Actually, I don't uh, remember which year it exactly started. And Nico, do you know the, the rough estimate of the?
2: No, I I couldn't couldn't say either. But it's becoming yeah,
1: a... maybe I, yeah. I, my rough guess might be one decade, but I, but I, I might be inaccurate.
0: Oh, I see. And um, optical imaging, I, I remember it it um, it, it measures um, blood flows in your 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 brain uh, veins. Is that correct?
1: So um, I think so. In, in, in different uh, domains, there's different application to optical imaging. So um, I think in, in at, at neural level. Um, people can use this thing called uh, two photo imaging. So basically you can shine two photons and two, that when only, only when kind of they uh, both excite, then you can, can see, re- they can get a release of um, um, a, a, a photon, a different wave band. But okay. so that is typically try to uh, use uh, used to measure uh, neuronal activity. Um, on the other hand, an optical imaging can also be applied to measure human uh, activity, which is at a coarser. Spatial scale, and that indeed uh, is uh, monitoring the uh, the level of oxygen in the blood, which indirectly reflect the activity of, of neurons in the surrounding.
0: Yeah, I, I remember from uh, taking an introductory course to psychology a long, long time ago, that there was a, a, a trade-off, I think, between um, simultaneity, between um, a, a very timely look into the brain and the, the resolution, I think. So where are we now? Do we have do we have a, a firm grasp, actually, of, 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 um, of, of simultaneous um, um, an analysis?
1: Yeah, so uh, indeed uh, this trade off has always been there. And uh, so when we look at the whole brain imaging, um, fri is uh, or functional magnetic uh, resonant imaging is uh, is the best way to have a full brain coverage for human brain. But unfortunately, it, it suffers suffers uh, in terms of the spatial resolution yeah. and also time per resolution. Uh, and uh, currently, uh, the optimal imaging that are used for uh, animals, although I'm not expert on that but uh, as as far as I, I, I heard uh, it, it there is also a kind of trade-off uh, between the coverage like how much brain area you can cover and uh, how much spatial resolution you have but uh, from what I understand they have improved quite a lot in the last yeah uh, thank
0: you. now how how does artificial intelligence now come into your work in terms of? Um, assisting you in, uh, in examining the brain and its processes further. Nicholas, what would you say?
2: Um, I think there are two, two fundamentally, or maybe not so different, but there are two different ways in which it comes in. The one um, side is that it is a data analysis tool for us. So neuroscientist Mingbo has just alluded to over the past decades, we have seen um, a real proliferation of better and better techniques to study brain activity in, in humans, but also in animals. And these techniques, they just give us vast amounts of data. So in the field that I work in, with uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, um, currently we get something on the order of 150,000 data points every two seconds um, when a human is in an fMRI scanner. And that's that's a lot of data, and it's, of course, uh, way too complex to understand uh, without mathematical tools, but also with traditional statistical tools, it wouldn't be able. So we are using modern um, pattern recognition algorithms that come from the field of um, artificial intelligence to study um, the data that we get. Um, the other aspect is that we sometimes look at what um, the researchers in um, artificial intelligence research and the, the engineers who are trying to create um, intelligent agents that are not humans but bots that we interact with in chats or things that drive cars for us—what um, kind of solutions they come up with um, to solve problems? For instance, how do you recognize an object? And we ask, does the brain perhaps use a similar mechanism or sort of a similar approach to solving the same? Problem because we also want to recognize objects, so they basically are tools for statistic uh, for statistics, and they are also models um, that help us build hypotheses about how the brain might work.
0: That is fascinating. So the the first point you mentioned is sort of a, a vast extension of, of conventional statistics that you use AI to process these huge amounts of data, and uh, in order to to find pattern to discern patterns that would help you actually um, get a, a better um, uh, understanding of the phenomenon you're examining
2: exactly so um it is the i think the relation between statistics and um, artificial intelligence is often undervalued but in in essence being intelligent also means that you have a good way of doing statistics so even our brain does that as we are processing visual input There are many, many different aspects in our environment, some of them are really, really noisy, some of them are very clear and important, and this is kind of like the brain is looking through all the data that comes in through our senses, and it's basically doing statistics in order to understand which ones of these different aspects should I care about and which ones can I ignore, which ones are just noise, so to speak.
0: I remember when we met uh, two or three weeks ago to discuss about um, the, the outline of this talk today, you mentioned that traditionally statistics sort of has this, it, it's something you, you, you haunt um, um, undergraduate students with, right? It has a ring, you know, it's, it's, not really, it's not really hip, it's not really cool. Now artificial intelligence is very cool, I think nowadays. Um, so that sounds like actually it, it makes the whole thing maybe more more attractive.
2: Yes, I think it's generally true that in uh, maybe public perception, but even in the perception within the sciences, that things appear less gradual than they are. So there has been a long history of studying statistics and statistical techniques. They start from um, famous regression problems, which is undergrad statistics education. But the techniques, many of the techniques that we have today in AI actually built on networks. It was a very gradual process of invention and building upon step, upon step, upon step. At some point, of course, it had sort of this new label of artificial intelligence was grown and people think it's something qualitatively different when in fact, it sort of comes from this long tradition and there's sort of many gradual relations.
0: Is that actually, or Mingma, maybe I can ask you, um, the the way that you use artificial intelligence there to uh, assist your analyses uh, and your research, um, is that somehow actually um, similar to um, how uh, how our human brain would process your research results? Do we do the same? Do we look for patterns? Do we analyze maybe a smaller amount of data, but, do we go about uh, about it in the same way?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, so, indeed, I think as as Nico mentioned, uh, uh, roughly there are two ways that AI are helping us in neuroscience. One is we use it as a tool to um, kind of approximate some functions that are very complex and hard to describe, in, in, write down equations. And the other one is to use as a model to compare with human behavior. Um, so we are. Uh, in a sense, we are kind of more using this first approach, uh, for example, but we are we, we, trying to use it to help us to, uh, to improve our understanding of how human uh, make decisions. So, uh, for example, the way one way that uh, cognitive scientists uh, or psychologists try to understand how humans um, kind of uh, uh, like solve certain tasks is to uh, traditionally, kind of build these um, uh, more explainable models, meaning that every variables in the model uh, they have explicit meaning, and we mm-hmm. can write down equation how uh, how uh, the brain might kind of update these variables and, and make each next action. Um, so and that we can we can build such model and uh, uh, try to compare and let this model predict humans behavior and evaluate how much uh, these models work. In terms of explaining human behavior, but uh, uh, we can only compare uh, models to the degree uh, like within the scope of the model, we can think about right, so we can say, well, if, if we think about 10 models, we can say which one is the best so that uh, maybe our best explanation of how humans solve certain tasks. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, we might not have kind of come to the to the best model, so this is some, uh, this is one thing that uh, uh, machine learning or AI can actually help. Because you can potentially let a neural network try to read uh, the humans' uh, behavior pattern when they solve a task, uh, say a sequential decision task, and see uh, based on how this human uh, participant has made a decision in the past and what he has or he or she has observed before, let the neural network predict what he or she will uh, will take uh, what action he or she will take next, and then we can use. Uh, we can evaluate how much this network can predict human behavior. And you can think about it as a, as a bar for other models to, to reach, right? So if your cognitive, traditional cognitive model can reach this level, that means, oh, we are getting a very good um, kind of uh, performance in terms of explaining human behavior. But if there's still a gap, that means, oh, we, we know we have space to further improve our, our traditional model. So that is I think one way we can uh, We're trying to adopt neural networks for our study. Uh, Of course, I think another angle is tried once we feed this this neural network model to human behavior, uh, we also need to understand why it does this. And that actually is a is a non trivial question. (laughs) And I think we're still exploring. it.
0: That is fascinating. Um, you, you just mentioned this uh, this um, explanatory gap. I think you you called it so something that is is left to explain. Um, I, I'm wondering, artificial intelligence it, it crunches the numbers, vast amounts of data, it, it detects um, patterns. Um, how how um, reliable is this uh, is uh, artificial intelligence in is extracting the this, the the central features maybe of. Of, of brain processes or of human behavior, um, and, and how error-prone is it? How much is there left actually that w- where artificial intelligence uh, is, is unable somehow to, to help you?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think very, that's a very important question. So, uh, in general, we, we, there's a term called overfitting in, in, in deep learning, right? So, because a neural network has many parameters, it's very easy for it to perfectly explain uh, your data that, that you use to train this model but then it doesn't generalize where to uh, new data, right? So um, and so what we find, at least in the, the small domain that we have uh, started in terms of human behavior in, in a kind of abstract task, uh, in such task, the data we feed to the network uh, is quite low dimensional. Um, and we can also control the size of network. So so it seems that um, we are not not fully reaching the um, Kind of the limit so the amount of uh, data that we can acquire from human seems to be sufficient uh, for uh, for such network as long as you don't make the network so complex but indeed uh, i think there's a trade-off right if you build the network to- too complex and it's-, it's also very easy to overfit with the data.
0: The, uh, the term you mentioned over uh, could you repeat that uh,
1: yeah it's called overfitting
0: Overfeeding. Okay, something for my my notebook to, to examine that in further detail later on. Um, thanks so much. Um, where are we at this this point in time? Is the uh, the computational power that we have is it sufficient to to help you with the the main research research questions, or are we still waiting for the the next development, sort of the next stage, where something else might might uh, have to kick in in order to to help your research further?
1: Um. And for the type of data that we are dealing with currently, uh, they are sufficient. Uh, But I can imagine maybe for other uh, neuroscientists who want to use AI to process to kind of uh, process very detailed uh, kind of neuron neuronal structure data, like you you scan the 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 brain to try to construct reconstruct the connection between every neurons. That amount of data is quite big, and uh, I think maybe there's a limit for them. Uh, But for 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 me. um, our task
0: is not as complex as theirs. Yeah, Nico mentioned before the uh, the uh, the vast uh, this huge number of connections between neurons in the human brain. I, uh, I I might be out of my league here, but it sounds like something like the the number of stars in the universe, or something, or the the number of of uh, of pieces of sand on the beach, or something. It's 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 huge, right?
2: Yes, I think so. I I don't know what the the number of 1000 universes, but the number of synapses in the in the brain, which um, is roughly speaking, the number of connections that the brain has um, connecting different brain cells to each other, and um, is on the order of 10 to the power of 14. So that is a is a very, very (laughs) large number. And as as Mingbo alluded to, what is fascinating about that is that we know that the brain changes all of these different connections and there are so many of them. But we also know this is an incredibly hard problem to how do you change all of these connections? Imagine, so to speak, an engineer sitting somewhere um, who's trying to keep track of 10 to the power of 14 different connections and changing them basically on a second by second uh, basis as a function of our experience. And we know that this statistically speaking, a very, very hard problem. Mingo mentioned the term overfitting which is something that we think if you have so many parameters and so little experience, so to speak, should happen in the brain, but apparently it does not happen and we haven't really figured out why not.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Was the the brain also seems like a very efficient system, right? It runs on I think a comparatively small amount of energy, um, little voltage maybe, compared to you know these these huge server farms you might need actually to um, to to host uh, artificial intelligence systems. Um, we want to talk a little bit about the similarities between uh, artificial and human intelligence today, and also the differences. Um, when I was preparing for this talk, I was thinking, well, when you go through the literature, there's so much discussion. Um, there are people who are concerned that artificial intelligence is becoming smarter. and might make human intelligence obsolete, maybe, at some point. Um, but it, it seems to me there's, there's a fundamental question. That is, uh, what, what really is intelligence, uh, the intelligence that we talk about here? Is there a, a clear definition, a, a working definition that we can use, Nico?
2: Uh, I think it's, again, it's a, it's a relatively complex uh, question, and it depends really on what you mean. So you could, in, on the one hand, just say, well, inge- intelligence is the, the ability to solve a specific task um, efficiently. Um, if you can play chess, then you are intelligent. But you could also ask, are you still intelligent if you can um, play chess very, very well, but you cannot make a cup of coffee? Um, Or are you intelligent if you're like very good at making a cup of coffee, but you cannot play uh, um, chess? So the one sort of consensus that is emerging um, in the field is that maybe a useful understanding of intelligence is um, our um, agents, which can solve many different tasks in a flexible way um, at the same time without having any sorts of interference, so they can show the kind of flexibility that humans have, or we can play chess, but we can also make a cup of coffee, we can have a conversation, we can even have a conversation while we are driving a car and we can do all of these different things. So that gives us sort of a relatively broad broad range of abilities that we have. And none of these abilities is perfect. None of them is as perfect as a machine could do it. Machines can play better chess than we do. They can probably drive cars better than we do at some point. Uh, And they can probably also make coffee more precisely than we do because we can monitor monitor the pressure and so forth. But none of the machines so far can really do all of these tasks um, at the same time. And maybe this is where, where the kind of intelligence lives that we are interested in as as a species to interact with other than sort of expert systems so
0: uh, you you said intelligence would be the ability to solve problems but also that um it's it's a um a a, a, an ability that is transferable or uh, applicable to different um different different areas um i'm I'm wondering a little bit because um i I might be a good chess player but uh, in order to become a good um, Go player the japanese game of Go, um i I might have to learn it first and perhaps even play for several years is that is that the same with artificial intelligence or is it really just a matter of adjusting the programming are they smart enough to Mm. to to learn new patterns
2: I I think that is a very important point that um, a big um, part for me, at least for what makes an intelligent system is learning the ability to learn new skills. And one problem that um, occurs still relatively frequently in the current sort of technical side of intelligence and artificial intelligence is that learning new things comes at the cost of forgetting old things, um, at least in deep neural networks. And that is not so much the case for us. You could sit down as you say, you can read a book about Go, you can start learning Go, you might even benefit in your um, ability to play chess from the things that you have learned from Go. A machine that is trained to play chess to beat Kasparov if you would train that machine to play go, it would probably become a terrible chess player because in artificial intelligence we haven't really figured out how to to make machines that um, can solve multiple tasks at once without forgetting the other task
0: yeah. So, do um, uh, Bingo, maybe I can ask you the this question? If we if we have two um, artificial intelligence algorithms, uh, and we have the old one, I think that was in the 1990s at some point that that Kasparov was beaten at chess. Uh, I forgot was, was there was also an IBM system. Um, then we had you know recently two thousand seventeen or whenever it was uh, the, the Google algorithm that that beat the uh, the Korean champion in Go. Um, do both of these start with different um, with different programming, with different patterns that they apply to solve the the, the problems uh, they are confronted with. And are they not transferable to the the respective other area?
1: Um, yes. Yeah, so indeed, I think uh, in terms of um, uh, even in, in terms of input, they are they are, they are kind of uh, uh, in a sense kind of locked to the type of input they, they are they are provided. So if you just switch to a, a, a kind of a chess board, uh, uh, sorry, a, a switch a chess bot to, to a bot, and I think it's uh, it's going to make the, the network very confused. Right. For, the, for the, Yeah. Um, so that's one, one aspect. But I think even in terms of the uh, maybe the, the way that uh, scientists design these two um, algorithms, they are also different. Um, so I think in our uh, in alpha gold, it's more rely on a technique called reinforced learning and, and deep learning. Um, but as I as I remember, probably uh, for the chess, it was uh, was not the same principle. But I I have to confess that I didn't look too much into detail How they originally designed that. Yeah.
0: And now that sounds like there's there are a lot of similarities somehow still between um, human and artificial intelligence. Uh, am I right, or are there more more differences? Are they basically fundamentally different structure or work operate differently?
1: Uh, indeed, I think we neuroscientists do start to find there are quite a lot of similarities, even though there are, there are uh, many differences. Uh, so one example is, um, as Nico mentioned, uh, in, in terms of uh, how, how, where well we can explain the brain's uh, activity in response to visual uh, pictures, right? So traditionally, when we record uh, a brain activity through uh, FMI or functional magnetic resonant imaging that we just talked about. Um, we can try to build a lot of models to explain uh, the, all the, acti- the different activity to different pictures, but uh, it, it turns out that um, once uh, people try to use uh, deep network uh, to predict uh, the, the response of deep, ne- deep network to the pictures, when people try to use this response to link uh, to, to the brain activity, then uh, it turns out that actually they outperform all the traditional models uh, vision scientists has come up with. So that is one evidence that uh, perhaps indeed uh, these deep networks capture some important uh, uh, aspects that are similar to how the human visual system also processes.
0: Yeah, Nico, would you would you agree with that?
2: Um, y- yes, I think um, I think that's a nice way of putting it. There is there's a there's a pretty good mix now of similarities and, and differences between artificial intelligence and what we know about the brain. So I think it's fair to say that um many of the principles right now in artificial intelligence um that seem to work are at least conceptually inspired by what we know about the brain so we we've mentioned this term um now several times before one very common approach in artificial intelligence are so-called convolutional deep neural networks and so they um,
0: okay you have to explain that in detail i think for exactly. our audience.
2: <laughs> and so the When you look at them, they basically have two parts to them. The one part is neural network, and that, as the name suggests, is very inspired by how the brain works. Namely, it consists of a a very large number of small units that are highly connected. Um, And this is very similar to what we know about the brain, where we have these many, many different brain cells, and they are connected to each other. And as I mentioned before, one sort of principle of the brain is that what happens in the brain is not that the brain cells have uh, changed so much, but the connections between the brain cells uh, change a lot. And that is very similar in these models. So the, the neural network models are also made up out of very simple units that don't don't change so much, but they constantly change how they connect to other simple units. And that's so, important. Yeah.
0: So, so just like the neurons and the neural connections then? Is, is, that, yes. is, that, is that on the same order? You, you mentioned this this figure ten to the power of fourteen or something. It's probably on, on a much smaller
2: level still, right? It is mo- mostly on a smaller level, but one of the things that happened over the past 10 years or so is that we have found out that we, if we scale up these networks, which before was technically difficult, but now has become possible, they do indeed often become better. Um, so we often now, or the, the colleagues in artificial intelligence research, they often now use networks that have at least millions of parameters, sometimes even billions of parameters, so it's getting in the direction of the um of what we see in the brain, the the other aspect that I mentioned is kind of technical term convolutional neural networks. This is also something that has been inspired by um, by knowledge about the brain. It essentially means that when the when a network gets some input. Um, from pixels, visual uh, um, pixels, then it will process these pixels together that are close by in space. It will basically first consider a tiny patch in the upper right of the uh, image, and then a patch that's next to it. And this is something that also that the brain does where it is called retinotopy, um, that sort of local visual information is processed together. And so there's another sort of principle that comes from brain research that has inspired how artificial intelligence agents work. Um, And now sort of they are somewhat aligned. But on top of these sort of bigger similarities, there are of course many, many uh, differences. So the details, the biological details about how actually the brain two brain cells change their connections. There's a very intricate um, sort of biochemical mechanism behind that that doesn't exist in artificial, uh, networks and no one has cared or most people don't care to try and map on, on that level of detail
0: that's fascinating thanks much that, that's so illuminating um nico you, you pointed out that uh, you consider learning a, a fundamental part of intelligence or defining intelligence um how do we learn as, as human beings and uh, as opposed to that how, how does artificial intelligence currently learn or is it just being taught by its programmer.
2: Yeah. Um, So yeah, I think learning also over the past, if you compare the artificial intelligence that has been around in the 80s and 90s to today's artificial intelligence, then you can see that there was one fundamental shift um, from architectures that basically had um, had a um, set of rules. They were basically programmed to know if X happens, then you can do Y, if Y happens, you can do um, C and so forth and so forth. Um, Today's sort of artificial intelligence approaches are not um, from scratch programmed to do anything, but they are given a set of learning rules and then they interact with the environment, they gather experiences and then over time they learn. And these Mm -hmm. machines tend to become much quote unquote smarter, more efficient than the machines that we sort of initially devised where we gave them the rules from the beginning, but they couldn't learn themselves. And in in humans, this is kind of the same. If you think about um, a newborn baby, babies almost know, they barely know the basics to survive. They know how to breathe, of course, and how to scream, but they don't know how to speak. They They don't seem particularly, if I can say that in a very loving way, they don't seem to be very particular intelligent beings when they just after the moment they were born but within a few years they evolve into very very intelligent beings the most intelligent beings that we that we know of um and that comes in through a process of learning so somehow they take all this the experience they make and from that they learn how to speak how to play chess how to drive cars all of the things that we are doing now
0: So are we already at a a different stage where we don't just program uh, artificial intelligence, but where they become self-contained and and self-guiding perhaps?
2: I I think they, so the machines learn themselves um, and that means that we can also not fully predict what they will know afterwards. Um, It actually becomes an increasing topic that after a machine has been trained, it needs to be studied in order to find out what exactly it has learned because it can't be predicted um, upfront anymore. Um, But the learning process is highly guided by humans. Humans provide examples. Humans think about what is the order of examples to give, how long to train the machine for, and so forth, they decide on the architecture. So they are not really self acting in any real way that a human would be. They're still relatively confined machines that are fed some data. And then from this data, they learn to do some things on their own.
0: Yeah. There's always a little bit of uneasiness, I think, when, uh, when when we discuss sort of the evolution of artificial intelligence. We we had one question before the talk, actually, to that extent, uh, whether the the development um, and sort of the um, the the increased potential um, wasn't something to worry about. Um, I I don't want to sound too much like like a science fiction movie, um, and and. Nicholas, what you said actually sounds like that um, we, we, we monitor the, the process um, and we, we sort of know where it's, it's going towards. Uh, Mingbo, um, what, what's your take on that? I'm, I'm wondering a little bit um, wh- whether we, uh, what, what determines basically um, what kind of lessons Artificial intelligence draws. Does it does it uh, work the same way as as humans to that extent? And I'm, I'm not even sure actually what what the basis is for our assessment of, of for our learning um, how, how we learn what uh, what we do when we decide something is, is valuable or not valuable.
1: Um, I think that's a, a very important question. I think uh, um, so. When, as a, as a matter of fact, uh, whenever we talk about uh, deep learning or AI, uh, there's one thing that a researcher or developer of, of a network must define, which is something called cost function. So you must let the network to, decide, to learn to optimize for some particular objective, um, either to kind of make correct prediction of a label of an image, or try to um, win a, a, a game of, of goal at the end. Uh, but for human, uh, we do also have uh, these kind of uh, uh, reward in a sense, like uh, for example, satisfying our hunger. That is, uh, that is, is one type of uh, signal that can shape our our, our brain to our, our neural circuits to to kind of change other behavior to to make sure we can survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we indeed um, there's a fundamental difference between between human and and and, and and uh, what we use to train networks to recognize image, which is for human, we most often don't have so much, so many labels. Meaning we, we don't have a, a person to teach us for every moment. Like, ah, is, is this a, 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 a computer in front of you? Or is that a cat in front of you? A lot of the learning we do seems to be uh, what uh, in the machine learning literature called uh, unsupervised learning. Meaning we don't have teacher, but we somehow learn a model of the environment. And this is the thing that um, probably uh, happens quite a lot in the infant stage. And I think this is something that is very, important for the AI to, to learn from uh, and to actually try to look at the literature of, of uh, development psychology to, to gain the principle of how infants manage to learn a model of the world without some, some explicit teacher uh, to tell him
0: is um i, I suppose you, you could say that with artificial intelligence there's uh, quite a bit of hard wiring that it's created in a certain way to to process information to to draw conclusions from that um is, is that fundamentally different from, from the human brain are, i mean are we sort of like a blank um a, a blank board and we're confronted with the world around us and um what what kind kind of conclusions we draw is is, uh, is fundamentally open, or is there also some hardwiring involved with human intelligence?
1: Right. So um, so I, I I might not necessarily call the uh, AI fully kind of hardware, but what I want to say is that uh, uh, kind of the teaching signal are pretty much predefined, like uh, what is correct and what is wrong. Often is is uh, predefined. In many other tasks, but I think for uh, but in terms of uh, the like the basic wiring diagram, uh, indeed uh, the neuroscientists believe that there is quite a lot of pre wide patterns in the brain that is through evolution, and uh, uh, and that I, I might I already have been uh, kind of built to to optimize for certain type of learning, which mm-hmm. uh, we don't fully understand.
0: We have a very interesting question actually from the audience. Um... Uh, Mr. Aguirre, asks, is it important that artificial intelligence learning algorithms resemble the way the brain learns that relates to what we were just talking about? Is it a necessity that we model artificial learning on on human learning or is it just one approach and we might come up with a better one in the future? Nicholas, what would you say?
2: Um I, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessary. I think um Getting inspiration from how evolution has created intelligence and has implemented it in in a brain—that's uh, really inspiring and very important. It's giving us some sort of high-level concepts. But I do think that when you when we continue to approach the, the the task from an engineering perspective, that eventually we will find better or different solutions, um, because there's no evolutionary process, there are no biological necessities humans have a different metabolism than machines do, why would we, and the brain is certainly engineered to also work with the metabolism that we have, but if we can plug a machine into in a power outlet, they could give it a lot more power, why wouldn't we try and leverage that sort of extra thing that we couldn't have as humans? Um, so I, I think there is a positive relationship, but eventually they don't have to be the same. What is going to be true is that eventually, what is the question um, about what is the purpose of artificial intelligence? Why are we even creating artificial intelligence? And I think the reason is that we want to interact with artificial intelligence. And in that sense, the artificial intelligence always has to be um, somewhat more cognitively similar to the way we are, because we want to talk with it, we want to have it. Uh, a machine that understands the way also we think and the mistakes we make and then can correct us. So having an artificial intelligence that is out there but we couldn't understand, like it would be very intelligent but we couldn't understand it, that would probably not satisfy most of the people who are excited about AI.
0: That's actually a very interesting point because, uh, I mean, as far as I can see, all applications of of artificial intelligence revolve around areas where we are engaged too. so necessarily we would want to communicate with the, we would, would be able to to, to, to um, exchange information with the artificial intelligence also probably understand what is what is happening. That is that's very interesting. Thank you very much. Um, th- there was another question. I don't know, maybe you can help me out with this. Um, um, how biologically plausible are the artificial intelligence learning algorithms we use now, like back propagation, for example? I don't know if the term back propagation means something to I you. Guess. Um, can you, can you briefly explain that? Yeah,
2: maybe? this is um, so that's highly contested back propagation is basically a mathematical uh, mechanism that we are currently using to train artificial neural networks. As I mentioned before, these artificial neural networks like the brain have many, many different parameters. Um, they start with, so to speak, random parameters they get some experience and then from this experience, they learn and that means that they change the parameters, very similar to the uh, way the brain would change its synapses. But the specific mechanism behind how to decide which parameter to change or which synapse to change um, is very mathematical and many people believe that it does not mirror how the brain does. And it makes assumptions about knowledge that the brain couldn't have, for instance, about how a synapse that is far away from the current synapse has changed. Uh, can influence in a neural network. You can take this number and copy it over and use it in your changing of another synapse. The brain probably couldn't communicate um, that kind of information um, inside. So many people believe it's not a realistic account. Some people are pushing back against this this notion and they believe that uh, this is um, needs further study.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much. That's really fascinating. We've talked now quite a bit about learning. Um, Decision making, I think, is another very central um, concept uh, when it comes to to human intelligence and also artificial intelligence. Uh, just thinking about you know these these uh, AI systems that um, make. Uh, Thousands of of um, investment decisions at, at the stock market, for example, um, makes people always very uh, uncomfortable because you, you you feel like you you're not entirely of uh, in control of the uh, the developments anymore. Um, same ca- question as with uh, with learning uh, Mingbo, human decision making. Um, how does it work, and how is it similar or different from what how how we program artificial intelligence?
1: Yeah, um, so I would say that uh, uh, from my perspective, sometimes maybe uh, the, the uh, decision making is not as interesting as in learning per se, because uh, it's a result of, uh, of learning, right? You, you learn what is good to, to, to decide and just take a decision. Uh, but on the other hand, I think uh, uh, maybe one uh, important lesson that we know from human is that we always have a kind of trade off uh, when we make decisions, which is between taking the best action we know and and try to get more information, right? So uh, take this. I think maybe take example of uh, when you go to a restaurant. Uh, do you take the, the the best known dish you have tasted before, or do you try to try a new dish? And and, and human often take this trade off. Uh, uh, in, in in machine learning, maybe this is not too much uh, focus. It does also play a role uh, in the reinforced learning uh, algorithm. Uh, mm-hmm. But once you you have learned the optimal strategy. Uh, for example, if you play a goal, uh, once you, 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 you're you reaching kind of very good playing performance, uh, I suspect that network doesn't need to do too much uh, exploration, um, but we're human always uh, keep a balance. And I think the reason of that is because we are never sure that uh, we are we have reached the best strategy. We always, in some, sense, in some sense, humble that maybe the environment can change and there's something we don't know, so we always want to explore. And I think this is a very interesting uh, aspect in. in in, in human
0: decision-making. So you would would say that we we, we sort of have this this uh, innate um, desire to improve ourselves. That sounds actually that sounds uh, great, and also sounds very idealistic. That we are on a that we are constant uh, constantly searching to improve ourselves. Um,
1: Nico may
0: I have something to add to you? do you want to? I, I meant to ask Nico. I, I remember from our, our preliminary talk, we also discussed the uh, the question. Uh, whether, whether humans are optimal intelligence machines, and this I think ties
2: into it, um, but yeah. please to comment. Um, it is, so I don't I I don't think that human intelligence is basically the limit of intelligence as such. I, I clearly um, can see how you can have. Mechanisms that provide eventually more more intelligent actions than humans could ever do, and I think when it comes to expert systems, we already do uh, have them. We already discussed sort of the famous um chess and go beating machines, and on that level, they are clearly more intelligent than humans um machines of course, they can have many benefits that we as humans don't have they can have very large memory size they can basically have no forgetting they can have a quite a different memory consumption they also have quite a different clocking speed in terms of processing speed that is much faster than what we know about um, the brain Um, so it's it's in a way almost more surprising that the brain given all these constraints that we have has come so far and has produced something that is still the most intelligent being on this planet Um, but eventually i do think that machines in in one area or another, will be able to behave better than we do. The question, as I mentioned in the beginning, is if a machine will ever have that kind of flexibility and broadness that we currently, that we as humans, have, uh, where we can easily generalize, we can learn so fast from instructions, I can basically um, give you a new task, show you how a new coffee machine learns, you will immediately understand it, adapt your behavior, I can ask you to imagine any ridiculous situation that you have never seen, um, and you can make inferences about it. Um, and machines currently do not have this this kind of flexibility yet. Um, if they're go- if they are going to get there, I think that that will be a matter um, of time. Um, when it, that's hard hard to say, I think.
0: So it would say that there's continuous improvement and, and th- machines would become smarter but the question is whether the, the, the kind of intelligence embodied in artificial intelligence is, is really the same as, as human intelligence maybe in terms of the fungibility that, that you can apply broad general intelligence to different areas um, mingbo w- would you see it the same way
1: you mean in terms of uh, whether uh, we think about brain as an optimal machine in some sense right yeah yeah, um, I, yeah, I, yeah, I would say that um, I wouldn't think that brain is definitely optimal. But um, f- so, but in in but uh, in, in terms of literature, uh, there is a belief that uh, in certain tasks that we tasks that we do almost every day or every moment, then we are very close to optimal. For example, um, when you uh, see an object and deciding how far it is from them, uh, we, we seem to a so, so task like this, and kind of perceptual task. We seem to be uh, statistically optimal. Uh, but on, on the other hand, like for tasks that we don't do very often, it seems to still be uh, constant learning as, as uh, we discussed.
2: Yeah. Exactly. If I, if I can add in here, I think maybe a nice way to put it is that given the constraints that the brain has, the brain is. very optimal, but we do have constraints. Our eyes have a certain kind of resolution and cameras could have a bigger resolution. Um, Our memory has a certain level of forgetfulness and machines could have memories that are like memory devices that are much uh, less forgetful and much bigger and so forth. But given what we have being biological bodies, we have come very close. But if you had a different kind of implementation, then optimal would look different, probably uh, superior to human intelligence
0: there are also several biases that human beings um, have haven't they um perception of biases that something where where artificial intelligence would also be superior because um, it, it experiences reality unfettered uh, undisturbed
2: I, I i think so um there are, so humans for instance were probably also built to make a lot of decisions um under um under a lot of time pressure, and given that, in fact, the brain is not a very, very fast um, CPU, if you want. We don't have a million megahertz of clocking speed. Um, it's it's probably much less than that. So we cannot, for instance, search through a million chess combinations in, in 10 seconds, um, but a machine could. So we have evolved to make good decisions in a very complex game, such as chess, without the ability to have this like, okay, infinite super fast search capability. And some of the biases that we do have stem probably from that trade-off, trying mm. to do the best you can given the constraints that you have. And sometimes that is biased, but it's better than than nothing, so to speak. I don't know if Mingbo wanted to add something.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I I do think that uh, there's one one thing we want to be cautious about: assuming that the machine can learn better or like remove the bias, uh, because it depends on how you let the machine learn. If what you learn, if you let the machine learn humans' uh, strategy of making decisions, then it uh, you will know, learn all the bias we have. And if some of the bias are not good, then the machine will also learn to be not so good. So this is something we I think we should be very cautious. Yeah
0: when you think about the future are you are you concerned about the development of artificial intelligence or are you are you positive and and fear that uh, it's going to make a, a very important um, contribution i'm also asking against the background of, of some people who who voice their concern on on our question board
1: um yeah so i think as just as any technology it always is a two-sided uh, thought, right so um uh to, sorry to edge thought so we in terms of uh if we if we make good use of AI to help us identify a better treatment of disease um, and I think uh, or even uh, to have fun, to build assistance to senior people who don't have enough support I think these are very good use of AI and uh, and they will be very beneficial uh, but on the other hand I, I myself do worry that um, if too many jobs are quickly replaced by AI, uh, it it is hard for uh, all the people who lose a job to uh, learn the new skills or find a new opportunity and an alternate career. So it might be something uh, that needs to be very cautious. That's Mm -hmm. uh, my opinion.
0: Thanks very much, Bingbo. Nico?
2: Um, Yes, I I think I I pretty much um, agree with Mingbo, I do have a very optimistic view when it comes to some of the immediate applications, I think particularly in medical decision making, uh, in drug development, in some other um, domains of decision making, having AI systems will certainly make the life of many, many people a lot better than than it used to be. Um, at At the same time, it is very important to monitor um, uh, what is happening in the field of AI and to have a constant um, debate about how to employ it. Eventually, it is just a very, very powerful tool. And um, of course, if you have tools that convey a lot of power, then you have all these very important questions who gets to use that tool? What do people get to use that tool for? And as AI develops so fast as it does right now, and maybe its power is increasing in time, we should be sort of careful to have an eye on that.
0: Thanks very much. We're getting close to our, our finishing time. Um, thinking um, about the future, what would you say are, are the, um, the 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 biggest discoveries that we still need? What what are the the, the, the grand open questions that still need to be answered?
1: Um, maybe for me, I think one one question I am always uh, interested in is how uh, infant or even adult uh, learn to build an internal model of the world uh, without uh, any teacher explicit teachers. So that's as I mentioned, why I think it is a, a fundamental ability that we seem to have. but We don't fully understand.
0: Thanks so much, Bingbo,
2: Nicholas. So I mean this is probably a personal sort of uh, matter of personal interest but one question that I'm very interested in is to better understand how thoughts are are um reflected in brain activity so we know that of course when when I I see your faces and have this conversation all of this information is in my brain but we don't know exactly how to sort of speak get it out of there and all my sort of internal thoughts are in my brain Um, And I think that is a really interesting question where we are making some progress, also Mingo and I are working on on this problem to some extent, Um, and that could also be very helpful for uh, the the diagnosis of psychiatric diseases, for instance. So I think that that's going to be fascinating. I hope, hope that we will make progress in this domain.
0: That sounds really exciting, and I'm, I'm also very curious to see the future development there. I have two more small questions because they popped up in the in the chat, and I think you can answer probably fairly quickly. Um, what, what what kind of um, programming language is predominantly used in uh, in uh, in your work working with artificial intelligence?
1: Yeah, so in my lab we, uh,
0: we use Python more often now. Oh, Python. Okay, yes,
2: same but thing. We with also you. Use... Python And for deep neural networks, there is a tool that's called PyTorch. Another one, it's called TensorFlow. So there's specific uh, programming environments that are made to program deep neural networks now.
0: Thanks so much. And and one final question. Um, You mentioned the uh, functional um, magnetic resonance imaging uh, system before. Are there other imaging systems that are currently um, um, playing a large role in your research?
1: For
2: my own lab, I think I predominantly use FMI. Um, I don't know about Nico. <laughs> yes, I also dominantly use FMI, but we are increasing our use of other techniques that have uh, a particular better temporal resolution. So FMI has relatively good spatial resolution, but not so good temporal resolution. There are two techniques, um, EEG and MEG, um, which have good temporal resolutions, and we are increasingly deploying them, and we also want to um, combine of these techniques to get the best of both worlds.
0: Thanks so much. We're out of our time, but it was a, a very fascinating talk. I've learned a lot. And it's also been um, very stimulating um, that I, I, I feel that I have to still read a lot about this area. Um, thanks for making time today. Thanks for joining us. Um, and thanks also to everybody who made time today to watch our Coffee Talk. Um, if you want to get in touch with our guests, um, you can f- find all re- relevant um, information on our website um, or you can c- uh, contact uh, Niklas uh, Schuck and Ming Bozai directly. Um, the DWIH Coffee Talk will enter the summer break to give you time to watch the Olympics. Um, as uh, we speak, um, athletes from all around the world are arriving in Tokyo. Tokyo. So I hope you, you'll have pleasant summer months. actually following the events um, there. Um, we'll be back um, in fall uh, with our next talks. We um, have exciting topics, including the future of hydrogen, hydrogen energy, and the ethics of AI. That's a coffee talk we had to postpone, unfortunately. Um, but we'll try to get back to that. Um, please do check out our website, um, our social media channels for news and events on research and, info- and innovation from Germany and Japan. Or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks very much, Nicholas. Thanks very much, Ming And see you
1: next time. Thank you. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye.